You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Tell me that's not a pretty amazing dynamic. Your guide on the side. Just bring the honesty and the integrity to the game. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. On BYU Radio. BYU Radio. I was, was in college. I took a public speaking class and sat there with 20 really nervous college students as they were, you know, we we knew we had 10 speeches that we had to give. Ugh, so scary. But I thought, and I did this, uh, I did this young. I think I was 18, 19 years old. And I realized at a young age that, holy cow, I can, boy, I can do this. I can give a speech that's uh, motivating and exciting and and I'm telling you, it changed me because now all of a sudden I knew I could, wor- I could work the words. In fact, my father-in-law always told me I had the gift of gab. And when he said it, it always sounded like offensive, like, oh, it sounds like I'm just a blabbermouth. But um, then uh, I, I learned to write. I learned to uh, do other things. I, I started learning radio even back then in the day and uh, doing broadcasting. And then I became a speaker. And notice I, my entire profession is around wordsmithing and the confidence to do that. Now I, I'm not – I usually don't get very nervous uh, speaking in front of large groups. But all of a sudden I realize that my confidence comes from my ability to carry myself. People might even think I'm a leader even though I don't pay much attention to detail like that. But notice to have – uh, uh, to have the ability to speak is a gift. To have the ability to listen, in my belief, is even a higher gift. So if you can actually sit down and assimilate and take in what someone's saying, that's even pa- more powerful, I think, than the ability to speak. But most people don't take a listening class. Think about it. Have you? Have you ever taken a class to learn to listen to another person? But even more importantly than listening would be the, the ability to actually be impressed or moved or changed by the pain or suffering of another person and let it actually influence you. Now, nobody's taken that class. I have couples that come to learn how to listen to one another and communicate, but there's this magic moment I found in every real, I call it a real conversation, when we actually get real with each other because we're recognizing each other's emotions, we're exploring each other's story or stories, we're attending to each other's pain, and we're lifting each other. That's a real conversation, recognizing, exploring, uh, attending, and lifting the conversation. But if I can do that in this magical moment, and I was able to do it last night with some of my clients, they're hearing their partner is hurting, they're hearing that they're suffering, And then I just ask them something simple like, what does it feel like to know that your partner in life feels so unappreciated by you? And when somebody actually lets that deeper thought in and they they get emotional, like it feels horrible. I don't want her to feel that way. And once they have kind of the empathy about that, it starts to create a change. So tell her what you feel. And then when he starts to emote and share how he feels bad that he makes her feel that bad, it creates a very real moment. It's powerful. So make sure as you're trying to be a better communicator that you're not just doing it to manipulate everyone else in the world, 
but let's do it to understand everybody. And let's not just understand the words they're saying. Let's understand the emotion that they're sharing. Make sense? It's just connection, 101. It's how we connect to our fellow human beings here on this great big ball of mud. We call Earth. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Finding enough time to sit down and read with our kids seems like a major difficulty. Isn't it funny where we, um, we know what's essential in our lives, we, we say we know what's essential, but if you knew that you could turbocharge your child's brain by reading with them every day for 30 minutes. Oh, boy, that's a lot of time, Matt. I mean, I mean, I, what about The Bachelor? When would we watch The Bachelor? And I don't want to make anybody feel guilty, except I know I don't uh, read it with my kids like I need to. And um, it's, it's hard. And yet it's so valuable. I think it's easy with the first kid. Our first child, we read, everybody read to my, my first child. My second child even got some attention. But my fifth and sixth children, eh, half the time we wonder if they're even home. And so just think about it. A little coach's corner. One of the things I wanted to talk about is it's uh, in the end, it really is the little things that might come from something like reading that might create a little more discipline in your child, might allow them the, the tenacity, the ability to, to put their phone down and to actually seek after something um, that, that might bring more insight, more understanding. It might also help them obviously uh, – with their ability to focus, their ability to to focus their attention on something. So it is a simple, simple little solution that might go a very, very long way. And it also could be, I believe, integrated into what we call family rituals. Maybe part of the ritual would be simply how we decide as a family to go to bed. And, um, you know, if we could have a little bit of time, family time, uh, doing whatever, whether it's reading or praying or talking. Um, we also have talked about on the show over and over the power of the family meal. And if you families that eat together and have a consistent dinner time where everyone's home and they, they spend that time eating without their cell phones on, just the, the wonderful blessings that are there um, as far as the child's ability to feel like they're a member of a group and a team or their family, their ability to um, say no to other things uh, and, and live a healthier life, have more self-discipline. Lots of benefits come out of just the family meal. But what about the family reading time? I mean, if you have younger kids, maybe it's time to open up a series of books. And as a family, let's read that series together. The benefit is if you, if you can just get everybody hooked into a story, we could turn technology off and spend a half hour uh, a night reading that. Or you can even make uh, any kind of story time more exciting or fun by having people play parts, giving everybody a different role to play, or acting out the scene, or spending a little time before you start this next uh, section that you're reading and talking about what we're going to read, then read it, and then spend some time talking about what we, what we read. Another rule I've seen with my kids is keeping it short. I have found a 15-minute to 20-minute lesson is so much more valuable than a 40-minute lesson where they're frustrated the entire time. So if I could give them time to wiggle and fun and have fun and wrestle and do what they need, and then we throw together a really solid 15-minute moment, there's power in that. 
Uh, a lot of times, too, I've even I've even just seen it in teaching in church or teaching a youth group somewhere. If I can just let them kind of relax and be themselves for half of the time that we're together, they will generally give me the other half to influence them deeply. And you'll you'll know you're influencing them because they'll be engaged. But let's remember, family is – it's about – really, it's about this ability to connect and relate to each other. It's about allowing the family to go where the family needs to go. And sometimes as parents, we're so dead set on it having to be our agenda, our time frame, um, instead of being a little bit more dynamic. And if we could teach our kids the power and the ability to handle dynamic times, we might set them up for success. Not everything goes on schedule. <laughs> Not everything is perfectly black and white, and this might be a wonderful time to create some more resilience in your kids as you talk about the less black and white scenarios of life. Anyway, it's just reading time, right, or it's some type of family time. I challenge all of us to, uh, to find that time today, and let's, let's, let's see if we can't habitualize it by making it a time that we can work together every day at the same time, 9 o'clock every night we're going to have family time or 9.30, when we go to bed, it's going to, we're going to go down and, and we're going to read a book together this way. It's just, it's basics, right? Family Basics 101. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. Do you, do you evaluate your impact um, and your ability to give by simply what you have? Or when somebody needs something, do you just immediately step toward that person and know that we'll find something, we'll figure it out? And or do you just oh, I, I can't give because I don't have cash or I can't give because, you know, I'm not in a place to do that. Every single one of us has something unique and amazing and impressive, honestly, that we could be offering the world. And the abundant mentality just simply allows us to start seeing that there are other solutions. A great uh, example that I've seen, it happened just recently as I was sitting down with clients um, where, uh, you know, a, a daughter was getting married. She has a, a man in her life. She found him as she was away from the family and, you know, found this great guy. Well, the parents don't like the guy. And, I mean, by the way, I get this example so many times a month. Three or four times a month I will have parents call me saying, we've got to figure this out. I don't want her to marry this person or I don't want my daughter to marry this guy. Um, but in the end, what happened um, is they come in with this dichotomy where it's either they marry or uh, they don't. Either mom and dad win or uh, I win. And in the end, what I found is why dichotomize it? Why is the choice an either or? Why aren't there so many other ways that we could look at this? And um, for example, what we could talk about is – how can we help mom and dad understand why this person is so powerful and awesome that you want to marry him? How do we, as mom and dad, relax and recognize that if your daughter is going to make a decision to bring someone into the family, that um, it's going to happen? So at some point, you're going to need to understand, care, love, and allow people in. And why not start that now? But part of it is because we have a scarce mind, a scarcity mindset where, well, I've only got one daughter 
and uh, this isn't the guy for her. And so when we start with the scarcity mindset, then all we can have are scarce thoughts. And then all that creates are scarce, fearful feelings. And then from the fearful feelings, all we can do is act out and be angry and, you know, do everything we can to stop the relationship. And then what we're becoming is someone that's angry, small, petty, not who we want to be in life. And that impacts what we're becoming. And then what we're becoming over time reinforces our thinking. Life is short. I'm losing my daughter. Now my daughter won't even talk to me. Obviously, it's this guy's fault because the guy, uh, she used to always talk to me until the guy came around. But there is abundance. And abundance doesn't mean that it always goes the way we think it's going to go. But abundance means I can love you. I can understand you. I can care about you. And I can also choose to listen to my parents and and take in to the fact that they have a whole, a whole other view here. They're seeing things I'm not seeing. Abundance might say that we don't need to hurry and get married, but maybe what we ought to do is slow down the process and get as many people on board as we can. And uh, abundance would say that we all ought to give it a fair try and um, on and on and on. But whatever we start with, whatever paradigm we begin with, abundance or scarce, is going to set up how you play out the entire situation. And it will amazingly self-fulfill and either create more abundance in your life or more scarcity in your life. It may not, by the way, be the life you thought you were going to have. That's the amazing thing about being abundant is you may realize that I didn't even know I had all of these other resources at my disposal, and now I can use those. And it may be a richer life, different than you thought, but richer in a variety of other ways. So just know abundance is a part of everything we do, and it's natural. And it will create over time, I believe, a healthier effect. I think I think your God has abundant ability and resources, right? And so if that's the case, then as human beings, the more abundant we can be, the the better off we can be. It doesn't mean, too, we still can't have, you know, um, boundaries. It doesn't mean we still can't have rules because we can. And inside of those rules, there are an, a, a plethora and abundance of solutions that we can still institute to uh, to make change happen and make things happen. Anyway powerful stuff, folks. Abundance versus scarcity. This is the Matt Townsend Show. The average person checks their email 11 times per hour, apparently, and processes 122 messages a day, spends 28% of their total work week managing their inbox. What was once a powerful and essential tool for doing our daily work has become a near constant source of frustration, anxiety, and distraction from our work. Here to teach us how to manage our frustration, anxiety, and distraction is and to and how to declutter our inbox is Jocelyn Gly. She's the author of the new book, Unsubscribe, How to Kill Email Anxiety, Avoid Distraction, and Get Real Work Done. Jocelyn, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. What a what a great time to save us because um, it seems like if you don't control your email and really all your technology, it, it will have a tendency to just overrun you, right? 
Yeah, I mean, I think you you made the ask comparison there. It's kind of email and is in a way um, sort of a microcosm of all of our problems with technology. And I think that, um, you know, it's really the number one distraction in the workplace at this moment in time. And it's kind of indicative of how we manage email is really indicative of our ability to sort of manage our attention in general. So I think if we can kind of master our email, then we'll sort of have mastered, uh, you know, really the challenge of, of paying attention in this age of distraction that we're living in right now. How did you decide to write this book? You're a blogger and uh, a writer, but what made you decide, okay, I'm, I'm going to write about email anxiety and distraction? Well, I really um, have focused for probably about the past eight years in kind of researching what helps um, make people more um, productive and creative in the workplace. And I really saw email as being uh, one of the number one factors that is really actually um, making people less productive and less creative at work. And so I wanted to kind of dig into why that was and, and how we might be able to make some positive changes. Mm. Why, why are we so addicted to it? Why, what does it do to us that makes us think that we need to actually check it 11 times an hour? That's crazy. <laughs> it is kind of crazy. Um, but it actually sort of taps into um, some key brain chemistry that's pretty hard to get past. There's sort of two factors. Um, the first one is this thing called random rewards. And essentially, you can kind of think about your email like a slot machine and, you know, kind of taps into that same thing that keeps you really addicted to playing slots. If you think about, you know, most of the time you go to check your email and you kind of, you know, sort of pull the lever, you know, to see what you get. Most of the time you lose, you know, you get something that maybe isn't very enjoyable. You know, you get an email from an angry customer or you get an email from your boss asking you to do something maybe that you don't really want to do, but every once in a while you get something really great. You know, maybe it's uh, an invitation to speak at a conference. It's very flattering or an email from a long lost friend. And it's those random rewards are kind of mixed in with all that other stuff that's Mm. maybe a little bit annoying, a little bit distracting that keep us really addicted. They kind of tap into the sort of primal seeking mechanism that, um, you know, is part of our brain chemistry. And that's the first point. And then there's a second point, which is really this thing called completion bias, which is that our brains, um, when we recognize a task as complete, release dopamine, and that makes us feel pleasure and makes us sort of want to repeat that behavior again and again. And so if you think about your inbox, you think about that, like, obsession with inbox zero that people have, that's almost like a sort of ultimate completion. But at the same time, you know, even as you move along, right, kind of ticking off those unread messages, you get this kind of little mini hit of completion. And that, again, kind of feeds into that brain chemistry. We like to see that progress. We like to get those really kind of quick hits of completion. We do. It's And then you get that, that mentality of kind of zeroing out your inbox and, ah, oh, look how clean it is. Look how clean it is. But you, you mm-hmm. used an interesting word, a mini hit. It's like a drug addiction. Yeah. No, I mean, it's exactly, it's exactly like that. And, um, you know, you made that comparison to other technologies. You know, that same thing kind of factors into, you know, social media and kind of checking off notifications and, and all of those factors. So I think we're experiencing that from technology um, on uh, many, many different uh, sides. And, and the, sort of, the sort of effect of that completion bias is that it makes us really predisposed to focus on quick, easy-to-finish tasks. Um, but in a way, that kind of has, when there's so many you know, different technologies, including email, offering us that completion bias, it can lead us to really focus on busy work at the expense of maybe neglecting some of the more challenging long-term work that will be a bit more 
meaningful in the long run. Mm. It's interesting. We don't get we don't always get that same completion task, you know, benefit being with our kids. Right. Because we don't always <laughs> there's no completion to this. It's it just keeps going and going and going. So we yeah, might we might I mean, postpone actually, that. <laughs> completely. Well, there's actually some really interesting research about that. The things that bring us happiness and the things that bring us meaning are actually quite different things that happiness really revolves around sort of being rewarded in the present moment, whereas meaning comes from kind of connecting past, present and future and really completing sort of more difficult tasks, whether it you know, be building a business or, as you suggest, you know, raising a child. Those are the tasks that are more meaningful, but they're also the tasks that are, that are more difficult. <laughs> oh, that's scary, <laughs> Jocelyn. That's, that's going to get us in trouble. Um, so how – okay, so you've been studying this forever, writing about it forever. How do we – how do we manage this? How do we unsubscribe? And because the the other component you bring up is the anxiety of it. And I guess mm-hmm. the anxiety is almost the addict needing its fix um, or those that have such an aversion to it that they're constantly afraid of what the surprise is going to be, the randomness of the reward. Because sometimes it's not mm-hmm. a random reward. It's a random stick to the head. You know, <laughs> the email is sometimes it's scary, like, Ugh, now I got to handle that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I think there's a couple different things. Um, you know, first, to kind of counteract that sort of completion bias, thinking about how you can actually um, make progress visible in the work that's more meaningful. So when you're working on those long-term projects, um, you know, are there ways for you to um, track your progress and make it a bit more visible, whether that's just, you know, taking two to five minutes at the end of the day to keep um, a little notebook or journal and kind of write down your sort of small wins or, you know, baby steps you've um, taken to move towards the goal. Or for myself, I have a calendar next to my desk. I write down my um, words written uh, every day because I'm a writer. So having some meaningful kind of daily metric that you track um, can help kind of activate that completion bias, um, you know, in the work that's a bit more meaningful to you. Mm. Um, And then, you know, additionally, I think one of the things that's the most powerful, quite challenging to do is um, we kind of look at the way that most people process their email. There's sort of two types, right? Reactive people and then sort of people who are processing their email in batches. And, you know, reactors are kind of constantly nibbling on their email throughout the day, multitasking with email and so forth. Um, Whereas batchers are kind of designating two, three, or even four, you know, specific times a day to 100% focus on their email and then kind of ignore it for the rest of the time. Um, And research has shown that the batchers were more productive, less stressed, and um, happier in general. So it's a pretty strong case against trying to check your email reactively, but I think that's a hard shift for people to make. And I think, you know, it is like an addiction. So like anything, you kind of have to start slow, you know, figuring out like if you you really, really have a hard time, um, you know, not checking your email at all, you know, try to just go whatever it is, you know, for an hour or two, um, you know, and kind of start the process out slow, but I think anything that you can do to kind of shift from that, um, out of that constant multitasking mode um, and start to be able to focus more on some work outside of email and really see progress there can kind of, you know, start to maybe shift your mentality a bit. Mm. Well, and that's that's interesting because uh, I guess it's a learned skill and you just need to maybe pay attention to how you do it. Identify what what is your hang up. If you're the one that wants to munch on it all day. 
I guess you're doing it for a reason. Um, is there is there a positive reason to munch on it every day to be more of a reactor? Um, you know, I don't think there is a positive reason. I think that the reason that we do that is because a lot of us don't really maybe take as proactive an approach as we should towards customizing our email inboxes. I think we kind of tend to accept them as is. Um, you know, so take a very basic example. Let's say you use Gmail, um, you know, and you want to go in and deal with emails that you've already received that you know you have, but then, you know, you get sidetracked by incoming messages, right, and kind of go down. You thought you'd spend 10 minutes on email, all of a sudden you spent two hours on email. Um, and that's because the email, right, is set up to distract you. Like, it's set up to eat as much of your attention as possible, but there are ways we can start to kind of tweak and customize. So, you know, one thing for Gmail might be there's a uh, extension, a browser extension you can download called Inbox Pause that allows you just to hit the pause button on your Gmail. So then you can kind of pause those incoming messages so that you can actually focus on, you know, the stuff that you really want to be focused <laughs> on when you're in there without getting distracted. Yeah. So I think just thinking about small tweaks can have a really outsized impact on your productivity. And I think a lot of us don't kind of go that extra step to just make those tweaks so that our email actually is less distracting. It's so true. I had I have, I'm in Gmail all the time, and I had no idea you could pause it. You've just changed my <laughs> yeah. life, Jocelyn. Like just Google inbox pause, and you'll find it. Oh my word! Where have you been? Um, one of the things that's crazy for me too is we spend so much time. There's a wonderful quote that says, "When are you going to stop swatting at the flies and go and patch the screen?" Mm-hmm. And we That's are we're so busy chasing the immediate and reacting to the immediate email that most of us don't even know how to how to how to customize our inbox. We haven't spent that hour learning how to do that and making it so personal to us. Um, it's it's almost we you know we're too caught into the addiction to actually go cure the problem. Yeah, precisely. I think we're all we're all I think we're also sort of obsessed with doing and keeping busy. Um, you know, we're not kind of spending enough time uh, deciding what we should be doing in the first place. Um, so I think it's a great practice to just say, you know, every whatever, you know, six months or something, you know, just sit down and, and take a look at your email and take a look at other things and say, you know, is this working for me? And, you know, think up a couple of things that are kind of really holding you back. And, you know, Google, are there solutions to those specific problems and just take, you know, two or three hours, you know, one day every six months to make some tweaks that could be really, you know, have a really outsized impact for you it's powerful. in the long term. But I think, I think the other thing is that people are often, you know, we're sort of like, oh, you know, we feel so put upon by our email. It's so distracting. Like, oh, I wish I could be focused more on other work. But a lot of times because we get caught in that cycle, we don't take that time to really think about, well, what am I focused on in the big picture? So, mm. you know, a lot of the kind of first portion of the book, well, even throughout my book, is about kind of, yes, talking about email, but also talking about, okay, what is everything else that's happening around your email? You know, are you, have you figured out what those kind of meaningful goals are for you at work? Like, do you have them written down? Is it clear to you, you know, are you making your to-do list the night before so you wake up, like, very clear on what you want to accomplish in a given day? I think when you're trying to resist that pull of addiction of email, you need to be really, really clear on what you would rather be doing on what the kind of, you know, big picture goals are in order to sort of resist those random rewards. Mm. Let's take a break, Jocelyn. This is great insight. Um, Just trying to identify your meaning. We could get back to that as well. Plus, I want to ask you as a writer, how to overcome email writer block. Uh, Sometimes you just have an email you need to send. I, I have two or three that 
I could I just keep procrastinating and it's killing me because then more and more pressure, more and more anxiety. Uh, we'll get a, we'll get some insight from a true blue writer on how to overcome the email anxieties as well as avoiding distractions, getting some real work done. It's all in her book Unsubscribe by Jocelyn Gly. Stick with us. We'll be right back. to the Matt Townsend Show. Joining us on the line is Jocelyn Gly, and she is the author of the book Unsubscribe, How to Kill Email Anxiety, Avoid Distractions, and Get Real Work Done. You can go to her website, jkglei.com, jkglei.com, and uh, and find out more from her blog as well. And uh, Jocelyn, thank you again for being with us. Yeah, my pleasure. As we, as we talk about... Uh, the emails. I, I I have a lot of emails that I need to get out, but they demand some thinking. They demand some conflict, dealing with some conflict, um, and so we tend to procrastinate them. It's not as exciting as you know the the roulette that we play when we're getting all the good emails in. How do I? And as a writer, how do you um, teach us what we're supposed to do to make sure that we don't induce more anxiety by just procrastinating the hard email? <laughs> yeah, well, I think one of the things that happens a lot with email um, is particularly when, you know, you get an email from someone and, um, you know, you know that maybe they are very anxious to receive a reply from you, but you perhaps have, you know, some more important things on your to-do list that you need tends to first. Um, and so that creates a lot of anxiety on both ends, on, you know, because you know they're anxious, you know they want you to respond, but you're kind of unable to tend to it right then. So you're sort of putting it off, but it kind of creates this low-level tension. Um, and that's one aspect where I think um, we can start to um, kind of, you can sort of do what I call kind of reframing urgency. Um, I think one of the things that creates a lot of anxiety with email is um, people don't know if they're going to get a response from you and they don't know, you know, when they're going to get a response from you. So instead of putting it off, just kind of quickly um, letting them know where that email and where that concern kind of stands in your workload, hmm. you know, so saying, okay, like, you know, I'm wrapped up in meetings all day. I, you know, I see your concern. I see your email. I'll get back to you, you know, first thing tomorrow morning. And just kind of quickly reframing that so they understand when you're going to get to it. And also so you can kind of relax and feel like you've kind of retaken back control over your schedule. And, you know, there's not this sort of kind of someone almost kind of breathing down your neck waiting for you to respond. Um, so I think that's an important practice rather than just putting, you know, rather than just putting off that email that maybe requires a longer response. Mm. Um, that's great advice because you get it yeah. out of you to a point. You actually take the urgency out of it. You re you reframe it. You've you've reorganized it basically. Exactly. Yeah. I think a lot of people are afraid. You just kind of, you know, you just sort of freeze up and you're kind of like, oh, and you just don't deal with it. But then you kind of feel guilty the whole time. So I think a lot of times if you just under, if you give people some context, they can be quite understanding. It's just sort of, you know, email is a bit like a black hole. So it's kind of like sometimes when they just don't even know when they're going to hear from you, that that really allows the anxiety to kind of continue to breed. Mm. Um some others, you know, maybe another kind of quick tip when you're thinking about putting up emails, emails particularly that require um, you maybe to deliver some, uh, you know, type of criticism or critical feedback or something like that. Um, I was having an interesting 
I did an interview with Carol Dweck, who's the author of Mindset. Um, she's really the sort of psychological researcher behind this idea of the growth mindset that you may have heard of. Yeah, yeah. Um, and she was talking about the power of using this word yet when you offer people criticism. So think about the difference between, um, you know, let's say you're critiquing, you know, maybe a junior um, employee or something like that. And the difference between saying you're not good at negotiating versus saying you're not good at negotiating yet. Uh, even just this tiny word kind of shifts someone from um, kind of onto kind of a timeline of learning and achievement versus, you know, kind of shutting them down cold or making them feel like a failure. So there's even just kind of little language tweaks that you can make, you know, thinking about like kind of little powerful words like that. Um, and I have a, actually in the back of the book, there's kind of a section of cheat sheets um, where I break out about 18 different scripts for, you know, some sort of difficult situations, whether it's like negotiating fees or delivering criticism or responding to angry customers um, to try and, you know, offer people some sort of very tactical um, stuff in terms of, you know, responding to difficult emails. I mean, because really that's just some basic guide that we need. I think about how much, how many writing classes I had as a journalist, and yet what I needed is an email responding class, right? And that's <laughs> completely that's yeah, and I think the new the- future. Yeah, right. And I think one of the really interesting things to be aware of um, is this concept of something that I discovered while researching the book, this concept of negativity bias. So Daniel Goleman, who is a psychologist, um, who's kind of the father of this term emotional intelligence, which we're you know, probably yeah. all familiar with now, um, looked at the way that people dealt with emails, and he found that they had this natural negativity bias. So which means basically between sort of the writing and the receiving, every email gets kind of downgraded a few positivity notches. <laughs> so if I feel positive about an email when I send it to you, when you receive it, you probably feel neutral about it. And if I feel neutral when I, res- when I send it to you, you probably feel negatively about it when you receive it. So everything kind of gets downgraded a little bit, and that's because the sort of social feedback loop is absent. You know, so normally we're talking now, um, on the telephone, you know, you can hear my vocal tone. If we were speaking in person, you could see my gestures, my facial expression, right? And all of that kind of shades how you process the words that I'm saying. Mm-hmm. But an email that's absent, and in absence of that social feedback loop, we kind of tend to assume the worst. So, you know, that's an interesting case when you're writing those e- any email, but particularly maybe a tense email, it actually is kind of... Um, you know, people are busy, they're, they're very distracted, you do want to be concise, but you also want to kind of also try to infuse some empathy and some, you know, encouragement or enthusiasm into those emails to kind of counteract that negativity bias. Yeah, which is why I guess having some of the samples that you put in there, some of the, the keys um, can be helpful and, and just the right words. I mean, it's... It's just, it's a feel, isn't it? Except you, what you're feeling isn't necessarily what they're going to feel. They're going to lower it, apparently, by the negativity bias. You also talk about the respect, uh, I think you call it the respect bias, um, or the busy bias. So what does busyness do to us? Yeah, well, I think it's, um, you know, as, as we've kind of, you know, sort of been a theme throughout this conversation, right? I think everyone's overloaded, everyone's overscheduled. Everyone's kind of overwhelmed these days. And so, you know, when we think about writing an email, writing an email to someone, we're sort of like only focused on the email. But when they receive that email, you know, that's, they're processing that within a matrix of 
however, you know, who knows however many other things, right? They're processing your email against, you know, the 147 other emails they haven't, uh, you know, dealt with yet against the, you know, client deadline they have to meet later that day against the errands that they have to run later against, you know, the concern they have about their kid at school, you know, so it's kind of happening in this, you know, swirl of all of these other things. And that really governs how much attention they're willing to give that email, which I think is, you know, very, it's going to be a very quick flash of attention. And so I think we can no longer count unnecessarily the sort of, uh, you know, benevolent attention from people. We really have to fight for it. We really have to earn it. Mm. So it's particularly when you're emailing maybe someone you don't know or you don't have a tight relationship with already, you really have to kind of, you know, strive to command their attention, to kind of um, establish your credibility, to, you know, convince them that they need to pay attention to you, but all in the context of, you know, understanding that that you, you do need to be kind of uh, very concise at the same time. I, I guess that's that's so more and more people now are vying for our attention. So they're going to escalate urgency uh, to, to get us to pay attention. Yeah, well, yeah, I think, yeah, you're right. It does have kind of this effect of, I think, escalating um, the urgency. And I think the other thing that we have to be aware of is that over um, half of emails are open for the first time on a mobile phone. So particularly a lot of times if we're writing an email, you know, say we're pitching someone or reaching out for an email that's really important to us, maybe to someone we don't know, a lot of times you draft those emails on a desktop it looks, you know, might look really manageable, mm-hmm. but then that person's going to receive that email on, you know, their cell phone. It might look like War and Peace or something <laughs> when processed on that small right. screen. So you have to be conscious of that as well. And so I always recommend that sort of people kind of preview those emails on the small, you know, kind of on a small screen and see what that looks like. Because I think we're at this moment where if something looks overwhelming, it's, it's probably going to get ignored. We have to be very cognizant of that. Mm, that's interesting, isn't it? That's, uh, I guess, in the end, do these principles that you talk about with email, do they all apply with other social mediums as as well? I mean, from Facebook to uh, uh, Snapchat, which might be more visual, these these are pretty basic principles. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the interesting things about kind of moving into this digital era is that more and more we're actually kind of being judged on our words alone, you know, sort of in absence of that social feedback loop. So the ability to um, write well, to command attention, to, you know, kind of communicate your ideas, um, you know, concisely and effectively is becoming an only, you know, increasingly more valuable skill and something that translates, you know, from email to social media to, you know, any other written medium. So I think it's definitely worth, um, you know, kind of buckling down and trying to figure out how to, how to really master that. You bet. Talk as just we wrap this up. What's the what would you say is the one key? If you, I always ask for like the one thing that that can immediately impact us, create some positive uh, safe space for us to not feel so anxious with our emails. Uh, other than getting the book, what would be the next best <laughs> key? Yeah, well, I think studies have shown really that the more frequently you check the, your email, the more stressed you feel. So I think uh, you know the number one thing would really be trying to shift to um, a batch email approach. So defining, you know, two, three, four specific times a day that you're going to focus on your email and then really striving to, um, you know, to ignore it and focus on other tasks 
for the rest of that time. And, you know, I think people find that a bit scary, but I think if you uh, experiment with it, you often find that, uh, you know, actually the world won't end and most people can wait an hour or two <laughs> for a response. So true. Jocelyn Gly is her name. Go to her website, jkgly.com, J-K-G-L-E-I.com, Jocelyn Gly. Uh, and, and check out her book, Unsubscribe, How to Kill Anxiety, Avoid Distractions, and Get Real Work Done. Stick with us when we come back. We'll be talking about the worst and best movie sequels up next with Caitlin Thomas. We'll be right back. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Mm-hmm. There are many controversial topics that we've talked about on this show, from elections to news stories. But on this show, we are afraid of nothing. We will tackle every issue. Joining us today, Caitlin Thomas is here to talk about the most controversial of topics, movie sequels. Do we love them or hate them? Let's find out with Caitlin. Caitlin, hello. Hello. I, by the way, have been watching the Star Trek uh, sequels. The the, the last three. The older ones no. or the new ones? The, the new, Chris Pine ones. Yes. Is that his name? Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm really, don't pretend like you don't know. I really don't know. But I really think he – is he Captain Kirk? <laughs> yes. He makes, a, he makes a wonderful Captain yeah. Kirk. And I would watch these forever. Yeah, I, those sequels are pretty good. I never got into the other Star Trek stuff. The Live Long and Prosper mm-hmm. yeah. stuff. My dad loves those. But I love these sequels. So Yeah, they're pretty good. But it also seems like when it comes to movies, people are struggling making sequels. Well, yeah, because here's the thing. This is what I keep hearing, that we live in the world that is running out of creativity. Yes. And so instead of making new movies with new storylines, they're just taking the same storyline and remaking it with different faces, or they're literally just making sequel on sequel on sequel Mm -hmm. of movies. Yeah, boring. I don't know how I feel about that. This all sparked because um, for everyone listening, especially all my females out there listening, the Gilmore Girls, Mm -hmm. A Year in the Life, just premiered on Netflix over the weekend. Oh, okay. And so that's what I was thinking. I was like, oh, these sequels. Like, people just keep making them. Gilmore Girls was pretty good, though. It was a pretty good continuation. But then I started thinking about all the really bad sequels that exist, and I just was like, we got to talk about Give me an this. example of a bad one. Okay, so I went online. So these are some of my own and some off the internet. Like, for example, Grease 2. The yeah. sequel to Grease. I don't think I what saw it. What was that? It was greasy. It was so bad. I didn't see that one. Yeah, you didn't miss much. I liked the first one. You can't compare. You can't compare. Like, that should have just been one. They should have just left it alone. Mm -hmm. She was my first girlfriend. What was her name? Sandy. Yeah, Sandy. What was her uh, real name? I don't know. Olivia Olivia and John. She was one of my first girlfriends. played by Michelle Pfeiffer in the sequel. Yeah, it was like a 30-year-old playing a high school girl, but it's fine. Nothing wrong with that. I'm one of the few people that didn't like the first one. Uh, Bye, Jeff. Wow. <laughs> and then, did you ever see the movie Mask? The Mask with Jim Carrey. Yes, uh-huh. that was super good, right? That was did you great. know they made Son of the Mask? No, and it was really bad. Bomb. Zapped. Should have just left that one alone. Oh man, that's sad. Oh, speaking of, so the three original Indiana Jones. Uh huh. Those were phenomenal. Great. Phenomenal. And then they came out with Indiana Jones: Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Did mm. you like that one? I didn't see that one. I don't think it had aliens in it. What's wrong with that? With Indiana Jones. Um, no, I, I didn't love it. I think I was one of the few people that actually liked that. It was mind-reading aliens. This is the I don't same know, guy that like hated Grease. Yeah. I'm 
not sure if we should listen to Josh. He likes aliens. Anyways, and then you had the phenomenal original three Star Wars movies. Mm. And then they came out with The Phantom Menace. They struggled there. They Jar Jar struggled Binks. And mm. like, I couldn't even stand him in the trailer. And then I had to have a whole movie with him. And I couldn't do it. <laughs> I like Jar Jar. Misa hate me, Phantom Menace. Oh, my goodness. So those are just some of the bad ones. You know that that's his cuddle talk right there. So yeah. that's what, that's why his wife fell in love with him. That's weird. Jar Jar Binks. Gross. <laughs> but can you think of any sequels that you've hated? <sighs> I'm putting you on the hot seat. Well, the thing is, I don't. I'm not into. Are you not into sequels? Movies as much. What about, I mean, like. You've uh, seen more movies than I have. What are you talking about? If you, even movies? Disney's I done some sequels that I haven't loved. Um, well, yeah, I never like <gasps> Toy Story. I never got into. I couldn't. I once you've seen Toy Story, I couldn't keep watching <gasps> Toy Story. See, but movies. that's on some of my best. I think Toy Story Two was a really good sequel. How'd you feel about to- Toy Story Seven? What? We're they're not. not they're yet. not there yet. Okay. Cars Two worse than straight to DVD quality. Oh, see. Cars was pretty decent. You should have just left that Man. one alone, Disney. Come on now. But now they've got a third one coming out. No. Yeah, that's See? and that, but that looks sad. They're still trying to make it, money. It's off got of a it. sad twist in it. It looks I know. like. Okay, but here's some good ones. Okay. So we're gonna talk about the happy stuff now. Like Toy Story two, that's a good sequel. Gandhi two, I loved Gandhi two. I loved Gandhi one, but Gandhi two. <laughs> okay. Mm, okay. Maybe not. But uh, the Hunger Games, Catching Fire. Good sequel. Okay. Did yeah. you like it? I like that. Yeah. That, was, that good. was a good one. I mean, granted, it's a book, so it's a little bit easier to make a sequel right. than a book. But it was still a good one. Uh, the Born Supremacy. Oh. Sequel to Born Identity. Yeah. I love those. Now, the problem is they don't come out fast enough. No, I know. They just keep dragging. But Jason Bourne, I mean, they're cool. How about the new one that uh, Tom Cruise plays in? It's a Jack Reacher. Jack, Jack Reacher. Reacher too. That was that. Whatever yeah, the Jack new one Reacher is. Yeah, Jack Reacher two was really that was good. good. That was yeah, good. Yeah, that one's good. Um, we have let's see, Batman Returns, the old one sequel to Batman. I can't. I don't watch those. No. Oh, okay, but did you watch? So that you have Batman Begins. Mm. You know, Christopher Nolan, mm. and then you have The Dark Knight. Come on, Jeff, help me out here. You didn't like those movies? I the don't Christopher remember. Nolan mo- I don't. What? I was. I think no. I was getting my PhD during all of Heath that. Heath Ledger won an Oscar yeah. for playing the Joker. That's oh, yeah, I why that The Dark one. Knight is one of the better sequels out there because of Heath Ledger's role in that movie. So, give us one more. Give me one that'll just Jaws six. Um, Lord of the Rings, the Sushi two edition. The two towers. Uh, yeah, the you gotta love that. That, that was... was one of the best ones. It's got that iconic battle scene at the mm. end. You love a yeah. good battle scene. Well, again, that was a book, though. So I think it must be easier to make sequels when there's an actual book storyline to already follow. Yes, someone's written already it. written it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <sighs> Moral of the story is, guys, 2016 is coming to an end in another month. Pray for better sequels. Pray for better sequels in 2017. That's great advice. <laughs> Caitlin Thomas, thank you. That was easy. That was fun. Come back Thursday. We're going to start our Christmas topics. Oh, how exciting. I need to start watching some sequels, apparently. Star Trek's the only sequel I've been watching lately. Yeah, get on the Dark Knight trilogy stuff. That's good. Mm, the Dark Knight trilogy. Sounds like a bad, you know, what? antibiotic Anti- program you got to be on. <laughs> we will take a break, folks. Come back See and uh, continue the journey. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to the best of The Matt Townsend Show. 
This is the Matt Townsend Show. I would suggest you forge more character. Your guide on the side. Uh, it's, it's these interruptions that are there to teach you the lessons we need to live. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. On BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Life happens, right? Things happen, and it makes it so we can't always, you know, expect things to go the way you would have wanted them to go. Uh Kids might have to move home. Economic situations, the degree that they were trying to obtain um, wasn't a degree necessarily that they could make the money they need to make. Uh, Other issues, medical issues, health issues, psychological issues, there's a, a lot of reasons why we may need to look to go back home. And so one of the things I would uh, suggest, I think, to all of us is, A, let's all judge a lot less those situations because we don't know why our neighbor's kids are still living at home. But one of the things I know that we can do is, and and I'm noticing it with my own children, I have uh, six kids, a daughter and five boys, and the daughters, she went to school, got married, moved on, has a house, doing her thing growing in a healthy way. my All my kids are, are at it. They're out doing the things that they're supposed to do, trying to figure out life. One is away at college, um, and one just got home from an LDS mission. But what is amazing to me is I is the level of parenting that you still are doing with these kids, as even as you've thought you launched them. You know, I think we a lot of us think that once we just kind of shoot them out into the world— they're not going to boomerang back. But the reality is my role as a father doesn't end. I can keep teaching more and more and giving other ideas and other information. And I'm just grateful that they're willing to come back to ask for help, for advice, for insight, because it allows me to keep influencing them. And one of the things I'm realizing is, oh, boy, I wish I had maybe taught them some more things when they were younger. I wish I had set some better expectations about life and how things work when they were younger. So remember that um, if if you don't teach them younger, you're going to get a chance probably to teach them when they're older. And so maybe let's spend more time trying to empower our kids. I always just think of the the birds that like take their little cute little baby bird and just push them out of the nest. And that bird better be ready to fly because it's it's time to fly. Um, and there's a difference between, I think, abandoning our kids and just throwing them out into the world and hoping they can make it versus truly empowering them. So what if we all spend a little more time with our, our kids making sure that they have the skills to to uh, to work? that they have a work ethic so they they understand that they have to get up every day and go make something happen to to not just let them only have dreams but also have the skills to make a dream become a reality because they know how to make a plan they know how to set a goal they know how to accomplish a goal and um th- there's a lot of tools there's a lot of resources i think for all of us to be able to teach these things to our kids. There are a million books. One of the things I've also just noticed in my own life with my own family is a lot of us keep shooting for perfection when really a little progress is all we need. We don't need to have the highest degree of completion of everything we do when sometimes all we need is some progress on a goal. We we don't need to um, have the perfect studio set up 
I've been talking to my son about. What we need is just a doable, actionable setup that would make it so my son could start creating his music. And when we get too caught up in the perfection of wanting the perfect studio, it might be actually just a way to have an impediment from risking and doing what we need to do. Every single one of us have goals and dreams that uh, that that we want to accomplish. But be careful because when you think um, – when you think that it's just easy to go live on your own, it's not. It's a, it's overwhelming for some of these kids to to know how to do it, to see how to do it. And so there are benefits of like going to school or in our case, having our son go on a mission where we know he can do it on his own. He came home after two years and he he had gained weight. He was healthy. He knew how to exercise. He knew how to take care of himself. He still had his teeth which meant he brushed his teeth regularly. You know, all these things we were worried about, he could handle. Then we just take him to the next level and take him to the next level. I think each and every one of us as parents, it's, it's upon us to empower our, ch- our child, not just to abandon them, not just to send them on their way, but make sure that inside of each of our kids is the power to thrive and to succeed. And um, I think however we go about doing that when they're younger— will influence their abilities as they're older. And I think each and every one of us should make sure that our kids have the social skills they need, the emotional skills and management skills they need to succeed in life, that they have the intellectual abilities, that they've either learned their kid, their gifts and their talents, and they're doing something toward what they're passionate and have gifts and talents around, or that they're on, the, you know, on their way to discover those things. I think we need to make sure they're spiritually solid and strong, that they have some connection to a higher power, and they know how to connect into that power to find peace when uh, days and times get difficult. Um, I don't think we should just hope they just get married, and then they're out of your hair. I mean, you know how many times I work with people that just got married thinking that was the answer, but they didn't have any skills or tools or abilities or insight and then they're supposed to go figure it all out with their spouse. I also don't think that we should avoid marriage either. We have way too many, I think, that are just afraid to go marry because it's different and it's hard. And I think a lot of that is because of us, we parents. We're the ones that have taught them that marriage is dangerous and scary and not quite what you thought it should be. So parents, we can do better. And uh, when, when our children do need to come home, let's sit down, let's make a plan Knowing the plan will change, but let's get real and let's be talking about it and let's be sharing your expectations, sharing your concerns, and hearing their concerns. Let's give them enough freedom, but let's also give them some accountability as well. You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. And at work, you, uh, you're you stressed. You don't know what it is. Man, you, you feel so anxious, but you've never thought you were anxious. You know, life was – you could handle stuff. But you feel like you're just losing it. What's going on with you? You may just uh, you may just be suffering from this this focus issue that Rasmus was talking about. The pressure starting to mount. So I, I put together a little list of some hidden signs that may indicate that you may have a little anxiety, a little anxiousness going on board. Right? It doesn't mean, and I don't love the label of yeah, you're just anxious. It's um, but you're feeling something going on. So here's some examples. And by the way, you'll notice it might simply mean to 
you can't it, you maybe don't have anxiety but you just can't focus there's too much stuff going on so we need to learn to prioritize and and figure out what we can say no to one sign is that you tend to procrastinate things if you put a lot of important things off you know everybody puts something off in their lives but and we delay we procrastinate but procrastination may give you the appearance that you're working but really what you're always doing is just thinking about what you need to do so we you know we we just think I'll just delay it I'll just keep delaying it um if you keep procrastinating it might be a sign that you're getting caught up in this too much you're being overwhelmed by it and it's easier to just put it out uh, ignore it, jump it, skip it instead of dealing with it. The fix would be instead of avoiding it or postponing it or, you know, moving and jiving, doing what you can to not have to deal with it, maybe just set a deadline and and choose to get it done. Get that one thing done. Find the one thing that you need to get done today and let's just get it done and not stop till we get that thing done. That would demand though, right, that you have a priority that you know what your one thing is. Another thing that that tends to probably induce a lot of anxiety in us is this indecision because we maybe don't know what's most important and everything in this world seems important because it came over the phone and it did beep when I when I received the message. So obviously it's important. Um the probably the problem is it's not always important just because it beeps. You know, that's just something you set on your phone. <laughs> Um, an alert or some type, some type of warning. Decisions are hard for a lot of us. Um, it's uh, we have self doubt. We have a lot of overwhelm because we have so much to get done. We've made mistakes in the past, so our confidence is down. Anxious people, uh, or what I call uh, Ferraris, in a world full of Chevys, about twenty percent of people are you know more high sensitive, more highly tuned, more almost in a way high performance that they, they might actually overthink everything. They overdo everything. They're overamped on it. So one of the fixes is simply to find ways to anticipate how you can you know maybe stay ahead, a little bit ahead of some of these issues. Uh, maybe find ways to simplify. Find ways to not make everything so difficult. Another sign that you have a, a little bit of anxiety on board might be the fact that you overcomplicate everything. Everything you add so much more value to. And it's great. That's one of your gifts is to add value, but you don't need to add value to everything. Sometimes it's okay to just let it be a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Maybe you don't need to perfect it by cutting off the crust. Well, the kids won't eat it. Well, then they'll learn to deal with the crust one way or another. But maybe what we could do is not make everything harder for everyone. Or as we talked about last week, always seeking perfection. Another thing we tend to do is just make up stories. We just have lots of stories about why we don't do what we do, why we aren't getting the results we need, why things aren't happening. And if you tell a lot of stories instead of getting a lot of results, odds are you might you might be a little anxious. So if you are telling stories, if you sense you're a perfectionist, if you tend to complicate and make things harder than they need to be, if you feel indecisive and you procrastinate a lot, my friend, you may have a little battle with anxiety. Doesn't mean you need to go get medicine. Doesn't mean you need to go to a doctor. What it does mean is you might want to start learning some resiliency skills, learning some mindfulness, learning to be in the moment, learning to be present, learning to say no, learning to find what your yeses are. Just uh, insight from your uh, neighborhood coach. 
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Dating is dead, exclamation point. Come on. You know, it's not what it, what it used to be. That's what we keep hearing uh, today that, you know, these kids, they just don't date like they used to. Um, you know, men used to pick up women up, knock at the door. Now it's all Snapchat and Tinder. But is that really what's going on in the dating world? Are they are people not dating anymore? Um, and is it really as awful as it seems or as some people make the dating world seem? So we thought we'd bring in the pro. And uh, who better to teach us about dating and what is dating than um, the author of the book Labor of Love, the invention of dating. It's it's a it's a wonderful piece that reviews the history and maybe and some of the some of the parallels of dating and and the you know the advancement of of uh, women and women's rights, the advancement also of of market economies and global marketing and even social media. Maura Weigel's her name. She is a PhD student at Yale University um, and in comparative literature and film and media studies. And a wonderful author, Mora. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Honored for and introduction. Well, this is a great. I think I. So I'm a relationship coach, and I love, uh, I love helping couples that are married stay married, communicate. But what's interesting, Mora, I loved your approach to this because I've, I've always struggled um, talking about the dating side because. I, I don't want to become cynical to it, right? I don't want to look like a dating. These kids don't date anymore. And so li- listening about your book, reading your book, I've, I started to find that there's a there's, there's an interesting history to dating. Teach us. what Dating, it, it's it, – talk about the history. I won't even lead it into what I want yeah, you to say. Yeah, well, talk I about the history. The question, to the question of whether or not dating is dead, I always like to say, you know, the invention of dating is the invention of the death of dating. <laughs> um, adults have, and I count myself among the adults, regretfully, so no name-calling here, but they have always, we have always worried that, uh, that younger people are not doing it right. Uh, so the history of dating, as you were sort of alluding to in your introduction, uh, is about 100 years old. You know, people, it sounds strange now because we all take it for granted that that's the way we do things. But if you think of most times and places in human history, that is not how people have paired off. It's usually been controlled by families or by community leaders like priests or pastors or rabbis. And, uh, and it's really very, very new and very shocking uh, when young people start to do it around around the turn of the last century in 1900. And my hope for exploring all of it was to bring, you know, some clarity and to sort of dispel some of this huge anxiety that I think you were bringing up. Yeah. I do think the sense that young people aren't doing it right, nobody ever feels like they're doing it right, and it produces a ton of anxiety for people on the dating market. <laughs> Which is why I guess they seem... Like they're not uh, doing it, but maybe the anxiety makes it so it's something they do quietly. No, I think. Look, I think that what you're getting at is, um, I think what dating is for every generation changes really dramatically sometimes with other changes in the economy. So, you know, one of my favorite details uh, that I learned in my research was that the first women who let men take them out to dinner around 1900. Um, these were working women, women going into the city alone without their families, which was a pretty new historical phenomenon then. 
uh, those women were often arrested for prostitution for letting a man buy them dinner because oh. that was the only, um, you know, that was the only thing that looked that it looked like to right. the police and to the authorities. Then, even if it wasn't a money for sex transaction, and when it often wasn't, um, you know, but it was. <laughs> Money yeah. for a meal for your romantic consideration. It was. Um, <laughs> oh, jeez. No, we're just having dinner. That's yeah, horrible. No, I mean, it's really funny. I um, a lot of the the first chapter of the book is about prostitution or sort of semi prostitution in this way that, um, that you know, I think people who go out and you know, again, this this ritual of the date. If you think about it, compared to like the Jane Austen type ritual where a man comes to your house with your parents. This ritual of the date, which traditionally involved a man buying something for a woman, often kind of looks like prostitution. I think we still have some of that anxiety with us, this anxiety about, like, well, what is it for? Who's getting what? Do I owe him something? Like, these kind of thinking, which you still see people having, comes yeah. out of that. But in the early police records I read for my research, you constantly see these women being dragged into jail, dragged into the reformatory, saying to the police, no, I didn't take any money, I just took the meal. Um, Interesting. Which is not to say that they had no material considerations. Often they did, because women were paid quite poorly and were often quite poor. Um, So often it was that they needed a meal. But uh, but I'm not joking about that. They really were arrested. (laughs) And it's interesting, too, I guess. So historically with dating, then, dating was tied to having money. You, You needed money to go out and and have an activity or you know you had to have enough money i i guess as dating became more and more okay less of a potential arrest um it yeah. was it was it was probably i guess the wealthier class that were doing it totally well it has a funny history that way because it starts out as a real working class and like poor immigrant phenomenon and that sort of from 1900 till about World War One, and then uh, then you get these sort of flappers and fussers, these really kind of upper class college kids imitating it, and it becomes fashionable. So that's I don't know if people know the book The Great Gatsby, yeah. Side of Paradise. That's like that era of of dating, and it's really only a bit closer to World War Two that it becomes a sort of middle class going steady Norman Rockwell soda counter kind of thing that I think we probably now have in our minds. And we think of, you know, quote unquote, traditional, we always mean the 50s in America, Yeah, I think. Um, but yeah, so it definitely goes from being working class to being sort of upper class first. And it's still, you know, it was always expensive. It's still expensive. Oh, yeah. Um, in time as well as money. I mean, if you think of the amount of time People spend tending to their, okay, Cupid profiles or their, I mean, I guess the Tinder profile takes less time, but Hinge or, you know, many of these apps demand quite a lot of time before you even get to buying anyone a drink or a dinner. That's true. Yeah. And it's, yeah, you've got to get through, you know, 20 text messages eventually to a call from the call to a place to meet. I mean, it it could take weeks. Yeah. And it's so, um, you know, it's, like many things in this country, I think it's increasingly divided along class lines. It's very different for people with more or less money. But for people, you know, in lower income brackets who are often working multiple jobs, like that's a lot of time. That's not a, a negligible barrier. Uh, so anyway, so it's still, it still costs time and money to date. You, if we don't necessarily think about it that way. Right. One of my favorite things that you talk about, um, because the, just some of the parallels, are the parallels between dating and working and kind of, yeah. you know, kind of a consumer, like a, a business kind of model. Even the terms mm-hmm. we use around dating and working parallel so closely. 
totally. Um, I always, I used to have, I don't have it memorized anymore, but one very long sentence that uses all the market metaphors we use for dating. <laughs> so, you know, it's things like on the market, off the market, damaged goods is not a nice thing to say, but it's a thing people say, um, hard to get, friends with benefits, investing time in a relationship. I mean, all of these are thinking about courtship is just permeated by these economic metaphors. And that was part of what got me interested in writing the book, really. And very early on, I realized it was kind of a history of the economy and especially of women in the workforce, which, again, you know, um, I call it labor of love partly for that reason. People only start dating as opposed to having their parents fix them up or their community fix them up once you get women in the workplace with the freedom and the obligation, you might say, uh, to find partners. So. So, yeah, absolutely. From its very beginning, it changes with the economy in all sorts of ways. It has to do with that original invention being about women in the workforce. It has to do with, um, you know, very practical things like, you know, there weren't movie theaters and then there were. That was a thing to go do on a date then. Uh, Or, you know, working hours, which have gotten so much longer since the 40-hour week of the mid-century. I mean, Americans work much longer and much more regular hours now. So I joke that, you know, used to say, a man would say, I'll pick you up at six. And that's when I you, you up? Right. It's like, who knows? Yeah. I mean, that looks like a decline of chivalry, and maybe it is, but it is also a practical expression of the fact that nobody's done with work at five anymore. Right. <laughs> or most well, people aren't. Yeah. Um, and you could be, you could actually be working and dating. I mean, you could, being at work together, hanging out and talking could feel like, you know, the same connection of dating. Absolutely. And I, what I thought you were going to say is being out on a date, if you have your cell phone, you can also be taking work emails. Oh, that's true. <laughs> you know? See? Yeah. Which adjusted the date, right? Oh, totally wow. a blend. Um, and then I see the last way I think that they shape each other, which is the hardest to measure, but in a way, to me, the most powerful is I do think all these concepts about, you know, how should a person be to be valuable or competitive in the economy I think do shift over to dating. Uh, You know, I've taught at Yale. I teach at Yale undergrads as part of my PhD. And I always think it's sort of funny that, you know, everything we tell them about the job market is like, you have to be flexible. You have to be adaptable. Never expect anything to last a long time. Like you can't put all your eggs in one basket that way. (laughs) And then people look at the hookup culture you know, this idea of sort of casual relationships and say, what are you doing? Yeah. (laughs) It's like, well, it's the exact same logic. You know, Tinder is an Uber for dating. These are just dating on demand apps. Yeah. To me, I think, in a way, the hardest to measure concretely, but the most interesting is the way these these sort of abstract concepts about how we should be and how we can value other people uh, then sort of trickle into the dating dating sphere. Mm. Like, yeah, just that's such an interesting idea that our the yeah, how I set you up to be, you know, a healthy employee and a a marketable employee is the same paradigm I'm using to teach my daughter to what to date. Right. Well, I think it's I think probably, you know, uh, unconsciously, I think I don't know anything about you and your daughter, but most dads don't want their daughters to be active hookups. Right. No, (laughs) no. Right. But I think those values do crossover and they make a lot of sense and in the case of the apps i mean these are literally the same tools i mean linkedin and okay cupid you know a job website and a dating site are actually extremely similar in terms of their structure their protocols their layout 
what they solicit you to do all the time. You know, LinkedIn is like, add this to your resume. And <laughs> okay, Cupid is like, add another book that you like, and then you'll find the person of your dreams. Oh, wow. <laughs> so oh, wow. There are a lot of similarities. Yeah, no, between, exactly. Between those platforms. That's interesting. Um, uh, we're speaking with Maura Weigel, author of the book Labor of Love, The Invention of Dating. Maura, let's take a break, come back, and uh, continue the discussion. I want to find out if love has changed. Um, are we sure. redefining it? And, and also, um, you know, how, do, how does dating follow as women um, have taken their place uh, in, in society as an equal. Um, I think it's got powerful insight as well. Stick with us. More with Maura Weigel and uh, the dating game, folks. Not the game, the history, but uh, it's still a game. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Dating is not dead. It's just changing. It's it's a different game. Now you use an app. And uh, it might be valuable, as uh, Maura Weigel is talking to us, to uh, make sure we're, we're looking at um, the paradigms behind how we look at and view dating or, you know, the, the, the parallel uh, systems that are going on, our work systems, our technology advances... Um, or advancements. I mean, so much is going on that's impacting how we would have to date. Maura Weigel is a PhD uh, candidate at Yale University in comparative literature and film and media studies. She earned her BA um, from Harvard University and is the author of the book Labor of Love, which is her first book. And uh, she researched it and um, tells wonderful stories. Uh, that she re- that she got you know from research, but from history, but also even uh, Mora from your beautiful ninety uh, six year old grandfather. That's true. Um, that's true. And it was actually oh gosh, I'm unexpectedly getting sentimental, but he was actually uh, very ill while I was finishing the book in the very last week, and uh, and I was I went to be with him because I uh, live out in California, but he is in Minnesota, and. Uh, it was actually really lovely. I got, I mean, it was sad that yeah. he was sort of in hospice care, and I got to spend, really, as I was writing the conclusion to the book, I was staying in his basement and getting his stories. It was funny, actually, the one of the hospice caregivers who was around most often was another older woman who was from, also from rural Minnesota, and so I actually did get a lot of lovely oh, great. dating anecdotes, sort of like several generations yeah. of Midwestern dating anecdotes <laughs> at that time. But yeah, he had a great he had a great time of it dating. I think he and my grandma really had one of those great 20th century romances, or, you know, they met. He went away to World War II. They came back. They, uh, so he was happy to talk about oh. it. Isn't that amazing? Kind of the multi-generational view um, of love and dating, it's it, it probably was exactly what you needed, right? To to be able to yeah. put the well, what I what I love is what, part of what was so fun about writing the book, um, and what I hope is fun about reading it, uh, is that it really is a subject that pretty much every single person has some kind of relationship mm. to, and so you know, my grandfather 
probably not very many things about <laughs> his dating life and my dating life were similar. Right. But, um, but yet there is, you know, I think the vulnerability, the desire to connect, the sense of, I think dating all through history has been both kind of anxious making and made people worry about what they're doing it right, but also kind of fun and exciting. And those emotions were all things we could share. Oh, so that was great. Yeah, totally. Well, he there is, there's this universal, it's a universal experience, right? I guess. <laughs> he might have been scandalized by a few things in the book in a way. I'm like, it's maybe not the worst <laughs> that he didn't get to read all of it. Yeah, yeah. Maybe maybe that's how <laughs> God works, miracles. Yeah. Um, but, well, and what yeah. a, I think just a beautiful experience for you. What about um, love? Is it, is it, is it the same? I mean, is it, it seems like it's, it, it might even be taking on, less of a romantic quality or is it taking on more of a romantic quality now now we've got all this technology and ability is it easier to find the perfect person that we think is perfect or are we more likely to settle now well i think that it's a complicated question because i think it's funny when i was writing this book i was thinking oh dating dating as a history this was like this huge revelation to me and then about halfway through, I thought, well, of course, love must have a history, too. All human things yeah. have a history. And I think one way I like to think about it is that I think there are certain aspects of, you know, our desires for one another, how we care for one another that don't change and are maybe part of our biology or sort of part of the kinds of animal we are. Yeah. And, uh, and then parts of it really do change when you think about social roles, you know, whether it's how husbands and wives interact, or how parents and children interact. Some of those things do change over time. And one metaphor I really like to think about it that I borrowed from a philosopher I admire was, is that it's, like, it's almost like watching a movie star in a movie. And it's like, if you look at, um, oh, what movie is out now? I don't know. <laughs> Let's say I'll do an old movie, you know, Brad Pitt, Legends of the Fall. It's like if you look at his character, are you looking at Brad Pitt? Or are you looking at the character named whatever the name is? Yeah. Um, and you're looking at both. It's impossible to say where one starts and the other ends. And I kind of think of that in terms of, you know, in any act of love, in any relationship, there are parts that are probably timeless expressions of our nature or our biology. And then I think there are parts that really change in terms of social role and the different kind of scripts that we're given to sort of fulfill our desires and instincts. And so I think that that's very abstract, but I do think, yeah. I do think love changes in time in some ways too. How my mother expresses her love to me or to my father is quite different to how her grandmother would have, I think, and absolutely different to how someone who lives in China now would express it. You know, these mm. things do vary across time and place. Do, um, do the men, yeah. has it changed with, with women and, um, women now really rightfully finally taking this this position um, at least in our dialogue where it might they might feel more equal um, are they is it is it is it changing the dating experience I mean I've had people say I don't know why why aren't the women asking more people out why aren't it's so it's almost like we 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 still haven't necessarily evolved to that point. I think that's absolutely right. And one thing that fascinates me is I think that sometimes our, our norms and our expectations about romance kind of lag behind economic realities or sort of other changes mm -hmm. uh, in society. So I think I absolutely agree with you. There is no reason why a woman should not initiate a romantic, you know, encounter or relationship. 
uh, there's no reason, practically speaking, why women shouldn't take that kind of agency. It's like, historically, you know, the reason that people think of women as passive and needing to be sought really comes from this, like, situation from the 1800s or older, right. and having to call on women in their homes where women really couldn't, were not allowed to go out in public on their own and see people. That is not our reality. There's no reason we still need to do that, but we do, um, we do still adhere to that cultural idea, often, I think, to the detriment of both men and women. I think it makes, you know, oh, yeah. forces women not to be able to express themselves or pursue what they want. It also puts a lot of pressure on men, like uh-huh. this idea that man, a man has to, a man is responsible for sort of initiating every stage. So I think that we do, uh, I think, you know, if you think about career advice versus relationship advice that are sort of bestsellers, I think it becomes very clear and you'll get the career advice and it's all about like, ask for it, lean in, be assertive. Yeah, exactly. And if you look at the romantic advice, it's the opposite. It's true. <laughs> like, and you, you bring know, that up. It's not him, it's you. Yeah. The I mean, there are all these like titles telling women never, that they can't ever go after anything. Isn't that, and again, why? I, I guess it is just, it's kind of just, it's almost, um, I don't like a Victorian age kind of concept that, of I don't know, nobility, I don't know what it is. It's, but like you yeah, said, we lean in, after, go after yeah. it, make things happen. Be in, you're empowered. Break the glass ceiling. Now it's like, oh, yeah. I'll wait. But I have – in my business, I have so many men that are – they're shy. They're, they don't they, – they want a date, but they don't feel socially able. But then I have so many women that come see me that are like, why aren't the men asking people out? And I'm like, go ask them out. And they look at me like I'm <laughs> nuts. That's not my yeah, role. I think – you know, those gender norms are taught to us from a very young age and put into us very deeply. When I hear you saying that, I'm like, probably everyone wishes we could just, like, call time out and suspend all those rules. Exactly. Which I think would be great. I think we should do. I'm calling for that on the radio now. <laughs> That's great, right now. But, uh, but I, think that, uh, I think that women are really taught to think that they won't be lovable if they show certain kinds of initiative and agency, and it's like sort of this deep fear that a lot of us feel. And I think men similarly are taught by all these signs in the culture that they're not like real men if they don't, you know, ask women out. Again, I would say I do think there is sort of an unconscious economic aspect. Men do still earn more money than women. You know, I think it's whatever it is, 70 cents on the dollar, 77 cents. Um, Women are disproportionately bear the burden of the risk of unwanted pregnancy and childhood. So there are all these ways that, some of the same old disadvantages do apply more than the lean in crowd would like to think about. Um, But yeah, I think that, I think that these, these norms are counterproductive uh, and sort of outdated. So I am calling to, you've done it. All the ladies go ask them out. (laughs) Well, and maybe, maybe it's an echo back to a hundred plus years ago where, you know, an aggressive woman or a woman, strong enough to go against the norms would go out to dinner with a gentleman and then be arrested for prostitution even though she was just going to dinner. So maybe it there's is, this this evolutionary echo of be careful, don't step beyond the is. mark or you're in trouble. I think it is. It's crazy. What um what do you see as the future of dating? I mean, now we have all this technology and, you know, it, which almost turns into a game and I might even feel like, hey, yeah, I spent an hour on Tinder so I've dated tonight. Right. 
Well, I think that through that exactly gets at the crux of it. I mean, I, I should say, you know, if I knew the future of dating, I live out here in San Francisco, I would have, I would have an app and I'd be a <laughs> You'd be a billionaire. <laughs> so I, don't, I don't know exactly, but I think that, you know, I think that what we see now in the past few years in terms of trends with these dating apps and how people use them is this push towards more flexibility in relationships. Um, some people say more efficiency, which I think is a little crazy for reasons we could talk about. Um, but I think that there are good things about that. You know, whether you are a recently divorced person or an LGBT, LGBT person, or let's say someone with physical disability, you know, someone differently abled. Um, I did all sorts of research on demographics who were able to connect, who had really had trouble dating. Uh, beforehand and found these online tools incredibly useful and they're useful to people you know I personally believe that people should have freedom to define whatever kinds of relationships they want so they're very useful in that respect I think the downside you know the downside of flexibility or the flip side of it is something like you know what I would call precariousness uh, that these apps encourage us you know any app makes money by people using the app it's sort of a funny, I think Christian Rudder, who's the founder of OkCupid, said it's a funny kind of service business where if you do your job well, yeah. the customer never comes back. <laughs> right. So, uh, so all of these apps are strongly incentivized to keep people on the app and keep them from pairing off. Tinder, which you brought up, is a perfect example. I mean, Tinder game, Tinder, I just said it, Tinder, you know, we said we play Tinder. It's like a video game about dating. Yeah. Um, and I think that, ironically, these very tools that are supposed to make the process quote-unquote efficient, whatever that would mean for a human relationship, um, that these tools of efficiency actually lead us to waste a huge amount of time basically doing free work for the dating app, which right. is what we're doing exactly. when we swipe for hours. So I think that, unfortunately, I think we'll see more and more companies that try to make, you know, try to make money and try to create businesses off of, you know, harnessing these very deep, unchanging impulses that all humans have to connect with other humans. Oh, I think that's and, great. That's yeah. that's great. That's great insight. Uh, they're tools yeah. of entertainment, really, right? And entertainment doesn't always equal partnering. Yeah, I think probably it rare, it rarely does. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's um, it's I mean, it's, it's the I same think. thing. You can go to a thousand, you know, uh, movies, but that might keep yeah. you from talking too. Exactly. Exactly. It's a great analogy. Or it's like a bar, like, you know, a bartender. I you think of the mom and dad, usually the mom, who would run the Jane Austen courtship scenario. Right. In that situation, the parents have a strong financial, legal, and hopefully emotional interest in their children pairing off with the right person. Um, a bar owner, you know, the person who owns the platform, if you yeah. want to put it that way, or creates the site of courtship in the era of dating, has the opposite incentive. And the bartender doesn't care if you get married. He would rather you didn't. Oh, that's um, he true. He just wants tips and people to keep coming and buying drinks. And it's the same with these dating apps. Oh, man. Um, Maura, you're on it. That's it. <laughs> You've solved that. We've got a, That's a great shift in my paradigm right there. I have never thought of that. You're brilliant. Maura Weigel, appreciate your great work. Keep writing, and uh, I, I look forward to the next book. Thank you so much. You Go bet. You bet. <laughs> okay. The All right. Thank Bye -bye. you. The name of the book is Labor of Love, The Invention of Dating, and uh, you can go find more out about Maura at uh, maurawigel.com. We'll take a break. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back.
You're listening to the best of the Matt Townsend Show. You know, there's dumb criminals and there's dumb selfies, and then there's this guy. Uh, police in Ohio say uh, their search for a bank robber was made easier when suspect John Morgan and his girlfriend posted photos on Facebook of themselves posing with the big wads of cash that they had uh, taken from the bank. Duh, the 28-year-old who was released from prison on July 19th after serving time for a previous bank robbery was arrested along with his girlfriend, Ashley Dubow, for the robbery of the bank in Asheville. And then what they did, you know, because it makes perfect sense. Let's just start taking pictures and posting photos of us with the cash on Facebook four days after the robbery. Total lightweight. Stupid, stupid, stupid. Very stupid. You can't be just boom, boom. Total control. Bing, bing, bong, bong, bing, bing, bing. You know what that is, right? You know the little bing, bing, bing. Bong, bong. I love you very much. Obviously, Donald Trump thought it was stupid, too. <laughs> Investigators say Mogan uh, walked into the bank, handed the teller a note before fleeing with an undisclosed amount of money. Dubot allegedly served as the getaway driver and also applied makeup to cover up the tattoos on her boyfriend's face, which read, loyalty's thin, betrayal's thick. Isn't that the same tattoo you were going to get, Ben? It, it's the one I did get. I just didn't put it on my face. Oh. Okay. Just in the small of your back? Loyalty's thin, betrayal's thick. Anyway... Come on. Come on. Use your head. What is the deal? This is our problem. You can't even rob a bank anymore without posting a selfie about it. Like, seriously. I wonder if I post a selfie if anyone will um, clue in that I just robbed a bank, even though I am a bank robber. And all of a sudden, as as an ex-bank robber and a bank that was robbed just a few uh, miles from my house, I'm going to post some pictures right now. Seriously. Honestly. We need classes for criminals. The do's and the don'ts of criminal life. A, do not post any pictures on or selfies while in the robbery. Do not post them after. Do not pose with the money when you are unemployed. Do not, if you're planning a bank robbery Uh, Life, do not plan on getting a tattoo on your face that says loyalty's thin and betrayal's thick. By the way, Ben, do not get that tattoo anywhere on your body. All done. Sheesh. (sighs) By the way, the, the suspect was wearing a shirt stolen in another crime for his mugshot. Lesson number C. For the stupid criminals, do not steal clothes and then wear them to other crimes. Thank you. It's just going to get you arrested. It's a trap. Anyway, um, good news, I guess, for America. One one captured. Here's another one. No one uh, obviously wants their car towed, but uh, Shad Badeau really didn't want his car towed, police say. 
The 40-year-old from New Hampshire uh, was arrested last week after cops in Manchester say he approached the tow truck that had been called to take away an illegally parked vehicle, which was his, and proceeded to set his car ablaze so it wouldn't be hauled off. What? What? You are not taking my car? You you put my car back. I bet you there was evidence in the car. That's why he was lighting it on fire. That is a good criminal. Getting rid of all of the other evidence. You are not impounding my car. I bet he thought the car was going to go back to the company, the title company. So, you know, he lit his car on fire. Uh, you know. I'm sure when your car's on fire, they quit towing it. Then they just call the fire department. Then the fire department puts the fire out. But you know what? You're so right, Chad. We are not towing your car. We are, however, going to arrest you for larceny. And for arson, you stole – oh, no, he didn't steal the car. He was – that was his car. He just arson and, um, you know, threats probably to a police officer. Bad boys, bad boys. What you going to do? What you going to do when they come what I'm going to do when they come for me, I'm going to light my car on fire. Ben, someday you'll have a car and you can do that. Well, I always have my bike as an op- option. <laughs> yeah. So that just remember that. Okay. Your bike, just light your bike on fire when, you know, they're in BYU you. police impounds my bike. <laughs> <laughs> so sad. That's, uh, you know, it's lessons for all of us. We've talked about it with Holly, rejection, and now we've talked about towing and impounding and being a criminal. Who to thunk it? All the skills, the tools you need in the world to grow healthier, happier lives. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. 